Hey, it's your host, April. This show, The High Guide, talks about altered states of consciousness brought on by cannabis and psychedelics and is intended for audiences 21 and over. If you've been listening to the show for a while and you like what you hear, please leave us a rating, a review, or a heart wherever you listen to podcasts. And lastly, I'm not a medical professional. If you are experiencing any mental or physical health concerns, please seek a licensed medical professional. Welcome to The High Guide. I'm your host, April Pride. Today's episode is a recently recorded event in Clubhouse, where you can join me each Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time with an assortment of High Guides as we cover all things A to Z related to plant medicine. Today's episode picks up where last week's episode left off, and maybe it's where we should have started things, on the farm, Aster Farms specifically. I recently sat down with Aster CEO Julia Jacobson to discuss her Outdoor Grows First of Its Kind Sustainability Report, published earlier this spring. Julia breaks down the choices she and other cannabis cultivators make taking a plant, seed to sale. We also get into a very different wine versus weed conversation, and that is the impending battle between the wine and the weed industries as resources, including land, energy, and water, become more scarce. They did just an incredible job of highlighting the ways in which the cannabis industry is contributing in negative ways to what we're all trying to do, which is to clean up Mother Earth, and the ways in which Astro Farms is saying, hey, we can do this differently, and and this is how it has a positive impact on our bottom line. You can create a sustainable business by putting sustainability at the forefront of everything that you do. I think it was about a month ago, and I've never had a a company report on themselves in terms of sustainability um, throughout their supply chain um, as thorough or if ever as Aster Farms um, did when I received that email. And Julia is the CEO of Aster Farms. She's one of the few women licensed cultivators in California that has also taken VC money, right? Like, and to be able to farm the way that you want to farm and that you feel good and are aligned with your personal values to be able to run your business that way and to take money from what some people refer to as the devil (laughs) is a tricky thing. Um, And my hat goes off to you first off for being able to, to put out a report that shows that you've stayed true to your intentions and it's working. Um, So yeah, big congratulations to you on that. Yes, it's big. Um, So I thought we could just take this report page by page because it really really brings to life what we have to gain and what's really at stake. Um, So if you could just, Julie, if you could please just introduce yourself, how you came to be a weed farmer. Um, I started my career actually in the fashion industry. I was a buyer for Bloomingdale's. And after a few years, I saw some holes in the market. So I left my job to start my first startup and ultimately um, sold it to Exo Group, the media company that runs The Knot and The Bump. Um, But during that time, I developed chronic migraines. Um, I was ending up in the the hospital every few months. And one of the times I was in the ER, the doctor said to me, um, you know, if you have access to it and you feel comfortable, please try cannabis for your migraines. I've seen it help a lot of people. 
And I had been a recreational user, but never in my life had I thought to light up a joint when I was in the middle of a migraine attack. And I did. I tried it and it completely changed my life. So that's how I originally got into the business. Um, My other connection, my husband, who's my co-founder, Sam, his grandparents have actually been growing organic off-the-grid cannabis in Mendocino since 1968. Um, So it is three generations of cannabis cultivation in the family. Um, Sam's grandfather was actually the first person to go to prison for cultivating cannabis in Mendocino. And legend has it, this part we have not confirmed, but legend has it that his family brought indica seeds to California. You know, Sam grew up with family trimming around him and going to the family ranch and knew knew what was happening. You know, they were, they have been growing off the grid in sustainable ways since the 60s. When they were raided by the DA, they said it was one of the most sophisticated drip irrigation systems they had ever seen at that point. In California, specifically total cultivation licenses were just at 6,000, just at over 6,000, but total cultivation acres in California of cannabis is 1,513, 1,513. Can anybody guess the total number of acres of grape-bearing wine land in California? 590,000 acres compared to... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, compared to 1,500 for cannabis. Um Total output in pounds of weed in California in 2019, 1.3 million. There were 3.9 million tons of grapes produced in the U.S. in 2018 um, for wine. (laughs) So it's just so crazy because you go on to talk about water use in the next slide. So the total um, production of U.S. cultivation, both legal and illegal, in 2019 of cannabis was almost 30 million pounds. Which is a lot. Which, which is, is a lot. Okay. Compared to but what? If you look at the legal market, I think it's somewhere like 17 million of those 30 million pounds are coming from California, but only 1.3 million of them are in the legal market. Okay. Let's say that again. So 30 million total U.S. cultivated weed in 2019, 17 million pounds of which cu- cultivated in California, but only 1.3 million is licensed from licensed grows. Okay, so commercial agriculture uses approximately 80% of California's developed water. (laughs) But cannabis, as I said, is like a fraction of the water that's used. So Astor Farms has three sources of water. Can you talk a little bit about the water cycle? Yeah, on your farm. Absolutely. So we have a couple different sources of water on our site. Um, And one really important thing is you have to have water rights to use the water. If you have a stream on your, your site or a well or a spring, you have to actually apply for cannabis rights to use that water for cannabis. Um, and then there are rules around which types of water sources you can use at certain times of the year. So for example, we have a spring on our, our property that feeds water for the residential house and other uses. Um, that is only allowed to be pulled from between November and April. So during the actual cultivation season, we are not allowed to pull from our spring. 
we built a well in order to supplement and pull during that season. Um, and we also have a 400,000 gallon ag pond that gets filled in the winter from the spring and from rainfall and then gets supplemented in the summer from our, our well. So we have three different sources of water right now, um, each utilized as per their various regulations and various best times of year to be pulled from or utilized. So water is probably one of the most important aspects um, when it comes to actual um, regulations. In terms of how we make our water as sustainable as possible, um, we do a couple of things. So first of all, our ag pond collects rainwater, it collects runoff. Um, so that's obviously a very sustainable way to pull water because we're not pulling it out of the actual aquifer. Um, we also irrigate at night. So when it's cooler out, there's less evaporation. So we're being more efficient with our water use. That's very important. Um, we use a drip irrigation system that is very accurate. It's a very slow system. So the plants are absorbing the right amount of water as opposed to being doused um, all in one at one time um, and that not all of that water actually getting absorbed into the roots it going further into the rest of the soil um, and we also use mulch so we use a um, we use a straw and we cover both our irrigation lines and the soil that keeps the temperature lower both in the irrigation lines and in the soil and it helps prevent evaporation so we we employ various techniques that are traditional agricultural techniques to make our water use as efficient as possible. Thank you so much for explaining the intricacies of it. Um, did the pond exist on the property when you purchased it and there was an intention to utilize it? There was not. So we added the ag pond. In our instance, yes, it is okay. a, a, a poly-lined um, pond. So it has a liner in it um, and it is specifically used and, and permitted for commercial water use. And one of the things about ag ponds, you know, you, you really have to be controlling the pH level because if the water's sitting too long, um, you can end up having pH issues. So we have used a floating wetland. So we basically use wetland plants. We build a floating structure that their roots are able to go into the water. Um, and that helps oxygenate and clean the water and keep it as healthy as possible. So um, we try to use nature and align with nature to do the work that we need done. I'm really struck by the water usage in comparison of the wine industry and the cannabis industry. So one one of the things that your report outlines here is for one glass of wine, it takes 25 gallons of water to produce. So one vine of wine grapes is about 50 to 100 square feet, and one vine can produce two to three bottles of wine. So we're talking about Aster Farms. For one square foot of cannabis cultivation, It's you use 22 gallons. What that output is of that one square foot to use 22 gallons to cultivate weed in one square foot how about we talk about it in terms of finished product? That helps. So yeah. to grow an eighth of weed takes about 2.5 gallons for Astro Farms compared to 25 gallons for a glass of wine. Compared to 25 gallons for one glass of wine and eighth last people 
anywhere from two days to two years, depending. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And then, I mean, you think about an almond. It mm. takes one gallon of water to grow a single almond. Um, And so, you know, uh, agriculture in general is water intensive. Um, But, you know, there are ways, at least in cannabis cultivation, to keep those metrics down um, to to levels that, you know, don't feel as offensive. (laughs) Can you talk about making that decision and why um, different um, farms make the decision to use it? to grow indoor when it just requires so much more energy, including water. Absolutely. You know, so there are pros and cons to each of the various ways to grow. And then there are also just variables that have to do with where you have a location. Um, You know, so in terms of the the choices that you can make, um, when you're growing indoors, you can get multiple seasons out of a year. I believe it's between four and six harvests um, in a single grow room. Um, But you're able to turn your harvest a lot faster because you're pushing the plant and tricking it with artificial light. So there are also financial implications to which direction you go. Just to give you all a big picture, 3% of cannabis industry or cannabis that's produced legally is from outdoor grows. Um, 60% is indoor and 37% greenhouse. So it's just a fraction of the cannabis that's available to consumers is available or is from farms with outdoor grows. Why would you choose to grow indoor? Your yield isn't necessarily higher um, because typically outdoor grows are larger square feet in order to make up that same yield mm. in an annual basis. Okay. Um, but they, you know, the, the more harvest per year is more about consistency and freshness with product. Um, when you're an outdoor grower and you're harvesting in October, you're harvesting thousands of pounds, but you're selling that product over the course of, you know, the next year. So you're doing techniques like keeping it with nitrogen to keep it fresh. Um, There are other techniques that we do to keep our product as fresh as possible, as long as possible. Whereas with an indoor, you're growing much smaller yields each time, but you're flipping that fresh product each time you harvest. One of the reasons we grow outdoors is we believe that growing in living soil outdoors actually creates the best cannabinoid and terpene profile. Um, So we actually believe that the way that we're growing gives the best effects from the cannabis um, and is also the best way for the environment and for the people growing it. So that's why we choose to do it the hardest way. What we have seen, and this is in the data in testing, is that our terpene profiles and our cannabinoid profiles are a lot more complex. Um, we're, we, we have once gotten our terpenes up to 6%. Um, terpenes are typically anywhere from 1% to 2 at most 3%. Um, so we are seeing really high terpene levels. From my personal experience as a very uh, avid consumer. Um, you know, I, I like indoor weed. I like outdoor. I like greenhouse. Um, what I find is that typically with indoor, it's a much heavier hit up front, but it's much shallower. Um, and when I'm consuming outdoor cannabis, it's much more of a deeper effect, um, but it might be you know, a little bit more long lasting. Um, You might not realize it as hard up at front, but it's going to last longer and it's going to be a deeper, more complex effect. Um, And that's what we are most interested in providing to our consumers. 
I want to to talk a little bit about greenhouse gas because in the in your report in Astro Farms report, it says that um, indoor and greenhouse cannabis cultivation have exceeded the coal mining industry in Colorado in terms of their greenhouse or their um, yeah greenhouse emissions gas emissions. A state like Colorado does not have the climate to be growing a real, true outdoor season. Um, so a, the majority of the cannabis grown there is in greenhouses and in indoor. And so um, the, with the expansion, as cannabis continues, more more cultivators continue to get licensed, you're going to see a lot more happening in, in structures that are creating a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so I think, you know, with New York coming online with a lot of these states that are going to have really large cannabis markets, um, but also don't have climates where outdoor is necessarily going to be that viable, we're going to see um, some serious impacts in greenhouse gas emissions. And this is the problem with not allowing for reciprocity to not be able to ship what's grown in California to New York, right? Like just unbelievable. And you know what? It goes beyond that. And I'm going to get specific about the county that we are in. Okay, um, In California, in Lake County right now, there is a big push from the traditional ag community um, that on any protected, on any what is considered farmland, so any land that is good for farming and is protected either on a federal level, a state level, or a local level, cannabis is not allowed to be grown in ground outdoors. It must be grown inside a building. So either Why? a either a a greenhouse that has that has to have cement augers put into the ground or in an indoor building. So let's just like take a pause on this. On the land that is consi- that is protected by our country to be considered the best land, the best soil to put roots into the ground, the ag industry is forcing cannabis to create cement foundations, destroy that soil, destroy that land. And the reason is, and this is the reason that we are being told, traditional ag believes, and they have literally said in Board of Supervisors meetings, we know that the science doesn't back this up, but that doesn't change the fact that the, the wine industry, it is specifically the wine industry, believes that the terpenes from cannabis are getting onto the wine and affecting the flavors and the taste profiles of the wine. And that vineyards are having orders canceled because the wine company that is buying from that vineyard has found out that there's a cannabis operation next door. It is Is that all, all urban myth? Is that all just... a bunch of BS? Okay, yeah. Um, there have been studies that that show that the terpenes, the terpene oils do not contaminate, um, wine grapes. Um, eucalyptus trees have been shown to grow around vineyards and not have the, the significant effects that they're talking about that would actually truly affect a commercial operation. So it's really interesting to see how traditional ag and cannabis are going to live side by side and how the tension between these two sectors in what is the ag- what truly is agricultural industry are 
are pushing them each other into areas that are not sustainable and not environmentally um, sound. So, you know, one of the things that we like to point out on these board of supervisors meetings is that cannabis is an agricultural product. (laughs) Uh, People seem to forget that when agricultural rules are being written. It means that a certain subset of land in this county will be either totally off limits to cannabis cultivators or cultivators will have to choose to grow in a greenhouse or indoor setting. The taxes to the county are double uh, if you grow indoors. So, um, I want to continue just to quickly reset the room. My name is April Pride. I'm the host of The High Guide, a podcast available to you wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're talking today to Julia Jacobson, who is the CEO of Aster Farms that produced, her company Aster Farms produced a, her, a sustainability report earlier this spring. And we're going through the results of it, which are eye-opening. And we were just talking about um, gas emissions. We've talked about water usage. And I want to move on to solid waste. This is, I mean, there's just one fact that I want everyone to hear, and that is the plastic packaging waste of one average pre-roll equals 96 straws. 96 straws. But that's not the only area that is really egregious when it comes to solid waste, and particularly because of regulations. In the track and trace system, which is called metric, every plant, every seed, every lot of clones has to have a tag on it. Those tags are provided by the state, um, by the metric track and trace company. And the ones for packaged product are plastic stickers. The ones for plants are plastic tags that are thick enough to be able to withhold the elements, to have water and fertilizer and nutrients sprayed on them and make it through a season. So these are not biodegradable pieces of plastic. And every stage that your plant goes through, so when it's a seed, it has one tag. When it moves into its veg stage lot, it has another tag. When it moves into flowering, each plant gets its own individual tag. Then it gets moved to a batch tag. Then it gets moved. So at each point, you're switching a different metric tag. We order thousands of metric tags over the course of a year, and we are one small operator. Every single one of those metric tags has to be attached to the plant with a zip tie. So now you add in all the zip ties that are each stage of the plant, new zip tie, new tag. So due to some of the ways that the regulations have been crafted, we are producing an excessive amount of solid waste in areas that have nothing to do with how cannabis has ever been grown or sold or distributed in the past. And that's one step in the regulatory process, one part of the supply chain that's producing so much waste. Is there another example? There are other aspects of the cultivation operation that are incredibly, um, you know, produce a lot of solid waste. So um, if you're growing in pots, so in indoor typically is grown in pots, in greenhouse typically is grown in pots. um, A lot of people are actually dumping that soil. It's not living soil. It's dead soil. You're just pumping it with nutrients. So literally the soil gets dumped. Um, I know an amazing company, Pure Beauty, they They do indoor, but they do their indoor in the most sustainable, regenerative way possible. And they donate their used soil to the city parks. So there are companies doing doing it the right way when they're in a position where they have to do something like that. But a lot of soil gets dumped. 
um, a lot of trellis gets dumped. And then when you're thinking about growing in pots, these are five gallon pots, 10 gallon pots, one gallon pots, they get cracks in them, they get thrown away. So, you know, when we're growing outdoors, truly, we're just using the sun. Um, There is no energy used to physically grow the plants outdoors. When you, when it gets time to harvest and, um, and cure and dry that product, that's really where the energy use comes in. So for Aster Farms, our energy use in, in 2020 primarily came from our processing facility in our dry pods. Um, in order to dry cannabis, it takes a pretty serious HVAC dehumidifying and fan system. And that is regardless of whether you're going indoors, outdoors, greenhouse. Cannabis has to be dried inside and it has to be sucked out of all of its humidity. Um, So that is a very energy intensive process at our farm. But with our expansion, we are going to be doing complete solar power for our processing for our expansion. That is big news. I think that is where we will we will end. Again, we're talking to Julia Jacobson. She's the CEO of Astor Farms, which put out its first sustainability report highlighting the ways in which the cannabis industry is contributing in negative ways to what we're all trying to do, which is to clean up Mother Earth, and the ways in which Astor Farms is saying, hey, we can do this differently. And and this is how it has a positive impact on our bottom line. You can create a sustainable business by putting sustainability at the forefront of everything that you do. I'm happy to see that Astor Farms, the foundation on which you built your farm operation, is is also succeeding. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the report with everybody. It's given us a lot to, um, I I hope it's given a lot of brands something to strive for for themselves, but it's also as a consumer, it's given me something that I can take to other people that want to figure out how they can do this quote the right way to get high the right way. Um, And it really is to choose a farm that grows outdoor. So thank you, Julia. Thank you, April. Really appreciate you having me on here and letting us talk about the report. Um, You can find us at asterfarms.com. And if you go to reports, you can download the entire sustainability report there. Um, You can also find us on Instagram at at asterfarms. So thank you all. Really, really appreciate the support. And uh, stay tuned for our next sustainability report. Thanks for listening to this recently recorded event in Clubhouse. And join me, April Pride, each Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific with an assortment of high guides as we cover all things A to Z related to plant medicine. Of course, you can listen to a new episode of The High Guide now every Friday. Please subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. For the month of June, we'll air more Clubhouse sessions. And in July, we'll kick off our monthly themes in A to Z lists from expert high guides. Thanks to our High Guides in this and every episode. A special thanks to the High Guides writer and content editor, Megan Ridley, our marketing coordinator, Bianca Kratzky, and brand manager, Molly Longest, and our producers, Nick Petrie and Josh Brown.